You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is Jim Rugg. Um, your latest book, Aphrodisiac, the follow-up, maybe, to Street Angel. Is it a follow-up? Um, I, I guess so. It's, it's our, um, you know, it's with Brian Maruka, like Street Angel was, and it's the first creator-owned book that we've done since then. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a follow-up. And the character first appeared at the end of Street Angel. And you also have the One Model Nation, which came out recently from Image. Right. And then I read The Plain Janes. So I got that, too. Your, uh, I guess, teen comic. Right. Um, so I got a lot of comics. You got a lot of comics. You're a fast illustrator, aren't you? <laughs> I don't I don't feel like one, but um, maybe. I don't know. Well, I know you've I, all... I don't think my editor would call me fast. <laughs> but um, the Plain Janes was drawn pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, it's more it, of a... it varies from project to project, and you know, it kind of depends on what else is going on. Well, the Plain Janes seems more stylistically minimal, where with Aphrodisiac, it seems like you kind of got to go apeshit on that stuff and just spend a lot of time because you're doing specific renderings and specific styles, so... I could see that being a little more labor-intensive. Yeah, I, I suppose. It was produced under such different circumstances that it's it's kind of hard to compare the two. You know, with Aphrodisiac, it was mostly anthology work over the years. Yeah. And um, it's just a lot, a lot different doing a six-page story or a short story than it is to do an entire graphic novel. You know, like with The Plain Janes. Yeah. It's kind of that doing a lot at once instead of a little here and a little there. Right. And um, with the Janes, um, we had a pretty tight deadline from the very beginning, so that kind of helped, I think, with, with my production schedule. You know, like, from the very get-go, I kind of had had the book all broken into deadlines and knew when everything was due. And with Aphrodisiac, we were working on um, things out of sequence, and it wasn't until you know, maybe the last 20 pages 20 pages of the book that we started to schedule it and figure out, you know, how it was going to look when it was finished. Well, why don't we talk about the the nexus of Aphrodisiac? Where okay. did he come from and how did he seem to become larger than life? Um, well, I can't remember exactly how we came up with the character he appeared in the last issue of Street Angel, and I, I really don't remember the circumstances. It was kind of this, you know, he was just a small character mm-hmm. in the story. And while we were working on that, um, we were asked to do a story for Project Superior, you know, from Ad House Books, yep. which is the publisher, ultimately, of the Aphrodisiac book. And um, we had a chance to work in color and decided, you know, we had come up with some ideas for Aphrodisiac stories, um, whenever we did that anthology, and the character just grew from that. Uh, the way we work involves a lot of brainstorming, mm-hmm. and um, with Aphrodisia, or, or with an, you know, we were doing a lot of anthology pieces. So, um, in the process of doing an anthology piece, we would often come up with a bunch of ideas that didn't make it in, and if those ideas were something we were interested in, then we would revisit them. You know, whenever the opportunity came up, like in a in another anthology or you know, maybe as its own mini-comic or whatever. And um, with Aphrodisiac, we just came up with a bunch of ideas that we kind of liked, and then anthologies presented themselves to us, and it just grew from that. 
Now, you and Brian both live in Philadelphia. In Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. God, what's wrong with me? I knew that, didn't I? <laughs> it's not. It's not too far off. <laughs> They're both uh, industrial uh, towns in the East Coast. Right. They're both in Pennsylvania. There we go. How big is Pennsylvania? It can't be that big. Um, it's probably five or six hours to drive from east to west. Okay. And we're on Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are basically on opposite sides. So. Now, how did you first start working with Brian? How did you guys meet up and? Whenever I got out of college, I did graphic design mm-hmm. um, for a manufacturing company, like in their marketing department, and Brian was a technical writer for the company. And most of the people we worked with were, I don't know, 10 years older than us or something, so we just kind of had similar sensibility compared to some of our other coworkers. And um, he was a technical writer, and I was doing mini-comics, so I would bring him in work that I was doing and be like, hey, you know, read this and give me tips and feedback and look over this script or whatever. And eventually we just started, you know, like working from from there. We started working together. And was that where Street Angel originally came from around yes. that time? What was it about the spunky girl that, you know, tell me about Street Angel coming together. Um, Street Angel started as a response, I think, to the TNA books of the late 90s. You remember how those were big, like the bad girl art? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there were all the Marvel and DC covers that looked like, I don't know, softcore porn or, or something with weird anatomy. And, and So it, it developed from that. It was kind of like, ah, oh, we hate this stuff. What's the opposite of this stuff? And it sort of developed that way. But over the course of, you know, working on it and refining it, um, it became less about, oh, we hate this stuff and more about, okay, this is fun, you know, play up this aspect. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it's a character that you guys both have a fondness with and just like to do whatever you can with her, I guess. She's kind of a carte blanche. She turned out to be a very flexible character for us. I think think because she's an underdog, it's very easy to um, put her in a variety of stories, and she's likable because she has that underdog status, which is very different (laughs) than aphrodisiac. (laughs) He is definitely not the underdog. Right. Everyone else is the underdog. So, yeah, Street Angel just became a, a kind of an exercise in us entertaining ourselves. And it got a, a lot of the stories were things we would come up with at work, you know, whenever we were bored or something like that, and trying to make each other laugh or, you know, wasting time, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Do you guys still work together? Or no, have I, comics I, been able to take over for you? Yeah, I've been doing I've been doing um like freelance full time now for about 3 years. But he still works at the same place. Which is um always fun to hear how everybody's doing. <laughs> and be glad you're not there. Right. Now, do you often do you ever write your own stuff or do you mainly work with a writer? I mainly work with a writer. I probably write a little bit of my own stuff, but not very much. It takes me a very long time to write anything, mm-hmm. and um, the way Brian and I work, I have like a ton of input, so it works out pretty well. You know, if there's something that I want to do, I can usually um, get it into whatever we're working on. So we I guess pass, you know, stories and scripts back and forth, and 
um, you know, it, it, it's really a 50-50 in the writing process. So it allows me to, you know, it gives me a lot of freedom to sort of shape stories the way I want to, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and then he kind of takes care of the the nitty-gritty dialogue and the words you see, I guess. Um, no, I mean, it, it's really a back-and-forth process, you know. Like, we both write scripts, and... Um, it, it just depends. Some stories are very much a give and take, and sometimes one of us will have an entire story pretty much worked out, you know, just kind of show up to, to a meeting or whatever with a very clear idea for a story. It really depends. Maybe you should let people know, um, part of the reason we're doing the interview this week is you're appearing in Seattle at the Emerald City Comic Convention Saturday and Sunday, March. Right. I remember the dates. Thirteenth and fourteenth. Um, yeah, whatever. Whenever it is this weekend, Seattle. Anything special you're gonna have at the convention for folks to check out? Um, I'm bringing. I have a few T-shirts that uh, a local museum here made in town, and um, I also have some like iron-on decals. For aphrodisiac. If, if you saw the book, there's um. There's a picture of a T-shirt that's an iron-on aphrodisiac T-shirt design. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay, well, I will have um, some iron-ons of that design and then some of another design and some stickers and artwork and prints. So I kind of I, I like the concept of having the iron-on. It keeps the, uh, the 70s aspect and aesthetic alive. Yeah, I can remember... Um, <laughs> getting iron-ons whenever I was a little kid. I guess they would have been like premiums and cereal boxes or Apple Jacks or something. Some Somewhere in my house I have my friend gave me a Joy Division iron-on for, I think it's the it's the album that has like the mountains on it and stuff. Wow. I never got around to putting it on anything. I'm like, what? I, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know. It always seemed too, I don't know, laborious to do iron-on and all that kind of work. But that's good. I don't, I, I'm not good I can't at. Can't believe any, you describe that as laborious. That's how lazy I am when it comes. Like, have you to, ever ironed a shirt? It's pretty much the exact same thing. And I'll have you know, I have never ironed a shirt. Wow. I know. That's uh, a long time I've gone without doing anything like that. I think there's something maybe, wrong with me. Maybe you could have like your mother <laughs> iron it on for you there sometime. We go. Yeah, please take care of this for me. <laughs> and have you been to Seattle before? No, I've never been to Washington before. Really? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, it's lovely up here, except it's almost it was snowing on my way into school today. So, we'll see. Yeah, I can never tell what the weather's going to be like. I came to Portland um, la- late last year, and I thought Portland was supposed to be fairly temperate, but it was like record colds when I was there. It's so odd. that wasn't very nice. So, um, going back to Aphrodisiac, did you guys intend to kind of eventually be able to put a book together, or was it kind of like you had an idea of something you'd like to do with the character? Mm-hmm. And then each story just kind of came together by itself? Well, um, yeah, at some point we had put together a proposal to do to do it as a series, and um, whenever we did that, we mapped out some, like, bigger storylines. Mm-hmm. And then whenever that proposal fell through, um, we had been 
talking to Chris a little bit about doing something, and it, it seemed like, you know, like once I started to assemble the material that we had, plus the material that was kind of in the works, it seemed like it would be enough for a book. And Chris was on board for, you know, doing a color hardcover, and um, it just grew from there. So it was probably, I don't know, a year and a half ago maybe that we started talking about it as, as you know, collecting everything and and having um, Ad House publish it. The really neat thing about Aphrodisiac is the uh, how you get to play, I guess, with different styles and genre tropes of the... Is it mainly 60s and 70s, or do you do any earlier stuff? I can't remember. The romance covers are probably a little bit more 50s-ish. Yeah. Although I guess there were romance comics into the into the 70s. There were. I've got a couple. I know uh, Lois Lane went pretty late. But if that so, yeah, I guess probably primarily 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Is there uh, any particular uh, pull towards certain artists that you're interested in doing? Or No, I avoided um, specific artists for the most part, I think. Yeah. Gene Colan was a, was a guy that I looked at a lot um, during the time, especially like his Strange Tales, you know, the Brother Voodoo stuff that he was doing. Um, obviously Kirby, you know, from that era. I was interested, I think, more in the Marvel house style for a lot of that stuff, like the the late 70s kind of house style. It was very, uh, I don't know, like a generic version of John Romita. Yeah. Like the Herb Trimps and the... Yes, yeah. That's a good, <laughs> good pull. Yeah. The early Bill Sinkovich stuff. You ever see that? How early are you talking? Because, like, the early stuff that I know of him... It was the Neil Adams, like the Moon Knight. The stuff he did before that, like the Fantastic. I don't know any of his work before that. I don't he did think. some Fantastic Fours, and there was that before Moon Knight. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh? I knew he did a run on Fantastic Four, but I thought it was after that. I'm pretty sure it's before Moon Knight. It's in a Neil Adams esque style, though. Not as um, interesting as the Moon Knight stuff was. Yeah. But maybe I've got my dates wrong. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've never, I never. I don't own any of the Fantastic Four stuff that he did, but you know, it's just something that's kind of on the radar. Mm-hmm. When did you start getting into comics as a young man? Uh, whenever I was about twelve. What kind of? <laughs> the first comic I remember buying was an issue of Marvel Comics Presents, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> speaks a lot more about the medium than it does some specific artist. That's for sure. It yeah. wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a very good issue. It wasn't like a Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X or anything. No, there were a lot of bad issues. Yeah, that that wasn't a great, not a great series for the most part. I think the only good brother Black Panther um, run though. It's like a twenty-five part Black Panther series. You remember that? No, I think the only stuff I really got out of the Marvel Comics Presents was the Windsor Smith. Weapon X, and then the one that Sam Keith did after, the Wolverine one. Right. And I really like that stuff, but the rest... I'm a DC kid. Oh, okay. So, like, looked at Marvel Comics Presents, it was just kind of a mess to me. Because I didn't... Where do you start? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess I was probably more of a Marvel... Marvel kid. Teenager, whatever, than DC. It's such a... 
dichotomy. You're either a Marvel kid or a DC kid. Or I started following artists fairly early, too. Yeah. You know, like Frank Miller was a guy who pretty early on I got interested in and, um, you know, tracking down, like, Ronan and Daredevils and uh, his Batman work. So, I don't know. I don't. I read X-Men. I mean, I guess I was more Marvel than DC, but, eh. Ah, whatever. It's all good. Yeah. When do you want to start doing comics? When did I want to? Yeah. Pretty much the the same day that I bought that Marvel Comics Presents, I came home and started copying pictures out of it. And was like, oh, I want to be a cartoonist when I grow up, or a comic book artist. And um, you know, my, my parents just thought it was a phase. <laughs> but it turned out to stick. Something you can't grow out of. Right. Now, do you guys have plans to continue along the lines of the aphrodisiac? Or is there something you want to start anew? You and Brian? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what we're going to do next. We've been um, talking a little bit and sort of taking notes on a variety of possible projects. But um, I'm drawing the guild right now for Dark Horse, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much taking up all of my time. So we haven't had a chance to really map out what we're going to do next. And um, I have, I'll be working on this until early April. So after that, we're probably going to kind of sit down and compare notes and think about what's next. No, we gonna... have another aphrodisiac story, but I don't know if we're really going to do it or not. Is it horribly inappropriate? or? No, I don't think so. It, it's just a matter of um, you put a lot of... Uh, you know, like the creative process for one of these books kind of follows this arc of, of build-up and yeah. climax, and then... You're kind of done with the character? Yeah, in a lot of ways. It's, it's you know, just the energy around it changes as you finish it. So, you know, it kind of depends on what what we're most interested in whenever we start working. Well, it seems like so much work must have gone into putting together this package. Like, did you do most of the design work on it, or was it Chris Fister as as well? Mm, I guess I did most of it, um, although I would send him stuff, you know, to get feedback, but as far as actually, you know, doing any of the artwork and and prepping it was mostly handled by me. Mm -hmm. Although it was nice to be able to send him stuff. Um, The cover especially, you know, like I had done a ton of work on the cover, and I liked the one that we ended up with, but I probably wouldn't have picked it if he hadn't kind of, you know, given as an endorsement. <laughs> well, it's a lovely cover. And, uh, you know, it's nice, simple. That's what you wanted to cover, right? Yeah, that's that's my thinking. I know. These things are reproduced so much online, and um, I guess even in previews, although that probably doesn't make much difference now, but they're reproduced at all these, you know, different sizes and very small, and, you know, that's my thinking, is you want something that's going to look good if it's 72 pixels high or mm-hmm. sitting on, on a table to show. Oh, Aphrodisiac. Such a tough man. <laughs> Tell me a bit about the, the, the fun you guys must have had putting together some of the stories. Oh, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Tell me about some of the, f- the, some of the fun you guys probably had putting together some of the stories, because they're so ridiculous, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think I have anything specific. <laughs> um, the process of putting the stories together probably isn't as fun 
hopefully not as much fun as reading them. Um, you know, but I, the, just the way we work, especially if we're doing something that's supposed to be funny, it's a matter of making each other laugh. Did you ever, did you ever hear the, um, This American Life about the Onion writing room? No. It's like the greatest episode, and it's all these guys sitting around telling stories, you know, and like the room doesn't, it's like people just don't want to laugh. You know what I mean? <laughs> Is they're judging each other's material? And so if you can get a laugh out of that crowd, you know, that's pretty much like the best endorsement you can get. So Brian and I are semi-antagonistic towards one another, and um, we, I think we have that approach, you know. Like the best thing in the world is for him to be excited about an idea and for me to just have no reaction whatsoever. <laughs> and I'm sure he feels the same way towards me. <laughs> just to so, break his you know, heart. If one of us can make the other one laugh, it, it's usually, uh, it usually works its way into the story. Now, did you uh, do a lot of research into 70s black exploitation movies? Yeah, not at first. I hadn't seen very many whenever, um, like whenever we did Street Angel number five, I wouldn't have seen, you know, anything beyond probably Shaft and Superfly and maybe the Mac. But as we worked with the character more, and especially once we started thinking about doing it as, you know, as more than just short stories, um, I went through quite a few black exploitation movies. I always love Black Belt Jones. Yeah, that's that's probably that's so close to that top tier. Yeah, you know, it, it, depending on how many titles you put in the in the very top, that's probably possibly one of them. That almost seems like the one that would have one of the interesting carryovers with your use of ninjas and whatnot. Even though I don't <clears> think there are any ninjas in Aphrodisiac, were there? Can't remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. I don't think there were. You know, <clears throat> a lot of the ideas we had don't make it into the book. With Dragonfly, um, we had a story that was a little more kung fu influenced, mm -hmm. but um, that would have been that would have had ninjas in it. But we didn't actually do the story. So, That's you know, beyond the um, black exploitation influences, I think are just exploitation movies in general. We started watching a lot of the. Um, the, the like the B movie and the exploitation movie trailer compilations. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's easy to think of it as just black exploitation since the main character is black, but there's other stuff. You know, like there are monsters, and it's kind of that whole plethora of of like B quality ridiculous culture. Yeah. Just recycling lots of odd things and whatever can go in and make something just right. more over the top as possible. Yeah, whenever I was very young, you know, like it was, I don't even think we had cable when I was a little kid, so we would watch, you know, like on the weekends you would have like the monster movie theater kind of thing, or, you know, like horror movies uh, with Saturday night with some local uh, terrible host type character. <laughs> um, so I'm sure a lot of this stuff was kind of bubbling up from that. And I grew up... Um, there, there are like five or six drive-in movie theaters within an hour of where I live, and I don't know how familiar familiar you are with drive-in theaters, but there aren't very many operating in in North America. I think there no. are only maybe twenty something. So to have like five of them around this area, I can remember seeing, um, you know, going to the drive-in whenever I was a little kid, and the second movie was always like more of the R-rated movie, 
you know, and if you're a little kid, you're, you usually fall asleep for that movie. But if you wake up, you know, and you're like half asleep and you're seeing, um, I remember uh, seeing part of Convoy, like whenever the car is between the two trucks, the two trailer trucks, and being like, like having that image burnt into my head as a little kid. <laughs> you know, like passing a tractor trailer was this traumatic experience for me like my entire life. I think it still is a little bit shaky. So um, I don't, you know, like I'm not sure if that's a regional thing that I was exposed to that stuff, but, it, you know, I mean, it was just one of those things I remember from being a kid, so. Some folks just eat up the movies. You know, I've got friends that just love all the the old classics as you well know because you do stuff with cinema story you're going to have a uh, piece in the next issue aren't you I'm sorry say that again I was saying um I'm you know been around friends who love their old cheesy movies and uh, because uh well you're going to have a piece in the next cinema sewer which kind of falls along that lines those lines Yeah hopefully I'll have a piece in there I haven't actually um haven't drawn it yet, so we'll see. Oh, okay, because I saw the first page on your Flickr. Oh, no, you know what? That already came out. That it was actually, um, that was oh. in last, I guess whatever the current issue is, it came out Came out last spring, maybe? Yeah, last February, I think. Yeah, it's about the uh, the Paris Theater in Portland, right? Yeah. Yeah, whenever I was in Portland, um, we came out of a bar, and we were walking down the street, and I saw that theater and was like, oh, that's so familiar, and then I realized what it was from. <laughs> kind of neat. It's a pretty sleazy story. People can check it out. Cinemasewer.com. Um, <laughs> a little plug. Ain't now, but it's gonna be Black enough for me Ain't now, but it's gonna be Black enough to see To see red when the song is wrong To see blue to see green on the pea green sea of humanity in the white white light of the night and now but it's gonna be Black enough for me Blue 
black enough to be black enough to see black enough for me and now but it's gonna be Tell me about uh, working on the Plain Janes, how that's different than working on um, Aphrodisiac. Do you get as much creative input in a project like that where you're working in the kind of big company DC Comics umbrella? Um, yeah, that, it was a really good experience. And um, Shelly Shelley Bond was my editor for that. Mm -hmm. She was really great, um, very encouraging. Uh, and I worked very closely with her and Cecil. You know, we would have regular conference calls, and um, I would get scripts and do pretty detailed breakdowns, and then we would all kind of go over those together. I don't know. It's hard to say with the how much creativity, you know, because I didn't have any input into the script. If something seemed odd or if I thought, it, you know, I, it could be done differently, um, I, they were usually pretty open to that. But overall, you know, Cecil wrote that. Wrote that. So creatively, it's not not at all the same as like Street Angel or Aphrodisiac. Or your uh, most recent Ninja poster. What about it? It's pretty amazing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> what was that originally for? It was going in the McSweeney's newspaper. Oh, okay. And at the last minute, they, they cut the article that it was supposed to illustrate. Fuck So disappointed. But you got to post it anyways? Well, I mean, I have the image. I don't, I, you know, I don't really, I haven't done anything with it. I may make posters, but. No, I mean, post it online. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they, they may run, it may end up running somewhere else, but as of now, it's just, just on my Flickr account. There we go. Tell me, do you do you have a particular love for ninjas? Because they seem to appear here and there. <clears throat> Not really. No. I think it comes out of liking Frank Miller Daredevils. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Ninjas were, you know, like I was a kid in the '80s, so ninjas were popular then. Did you ever ever get into the turtles? Um, they were they were fine. Yeah, yeah. they're just all right. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a hardcore turtle fan. But I like them probably as much as the next <laughs> cartoonist. Now, do you have much of a comics community in Pittsburgh? Yeah, there there are a few people around. Um, like you've Ed got Pisker. Yeah. Uh, Pat Lewis. Do you know Pat? I know of him. I've never met him. Um, Tom Scioli, the guy that does Godland, is local. Frank Santoro is here. Sometimes. Sometimes when he's not in New York. Right. Seems to split time all over the place. But um yeah, there's there's a so there's a pretty good group. And there are mainstream people like Ron Friends and Joe Jesco was here for a while, but he just moved to Syracuse. And um are you familiar with the Toonzam? No. So it's um it's a small museum that's uh, 
dedicated, I guess, to animation, comics, cartoons. And uh, they just opened a space downtown. And it's kind of a community-building type venture. And I so, heard yeah, it's, it's a pretty good scene. Uh, comic book fandom has a pretty long history in Pittsburgh as well. So there's a nice network of stores. I've heard good things about Copacetic and how... That's yeah, really Copacetic's supported. fantastic, and it's run by a really good guy that's extremely knowledgeable and generous with his time. And I think you even thank him in Street Angel, if I am remembering right. Yeah, I, th- I think I thank a couple of the local stores and probably forget a couple, but yeah, it's a nice community for comics here. So tell me about the Guild. I have no idea. Um, I guess I'm a bit of an internet Luddite on anything because I never watched or anything to do with it so yeah I wasn't familiar with it either until um, Scott Ali contacted me so it's a web show about a community of online gamers that play basically like a worlds of warcraft sort of game and um, Felicia Day is the main creator of it and writer Mm mm-hmm and I'm not sure how it became associated with Dark Horse. I guess she's a character in Buffy, and they were publishing Buffy, or they are publishing Buffy, and um, they did some Dr. Horrible comics, and she was a character on Dr. Horrible, so it must have developed from that. So the idea is to do a comic that, you know, kind of gives a backstory of these characters, but it also shows the fantasy, you know, like the in-game action which would be way too expensive for them to, to produce ever. Yeah. in live action. So, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty interesting. For, you know, like, it gives me a chance to draw in this fantasy Conan style that I never would have expected to do. So are you pretty versatile as far as being able to ape different styles? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> well, you feel comfortable doing it. I like to do it. Um, you know, I don't know how successful... Like, some, some styles are probably far more successful than others. I'm always jealous of the people that have a style that's very distinct. Like, I wish I had that, but I just don't have anything that I'm that comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Well, I find, it, I, I find something interesting, because, I mean, you're right, you're not... Your work isn't kind of screaming stylistic flair but it seems more focused on just, like, telling the story and kind of... You've got little bits you throw in here and there, like some of the lettering stuff you do, which is really interesting. Um, When you kind of do the exploding letters, which kind of work around, like, the Amanatopia stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Um, So I think that's good. It's It's an interesting comfort level, I guess, in the art where you don't need to... Like, I kind of see it as, like, the working man's cartoonist, in a way, if that's a huh. phrase that makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. Whenever I was younger, I wanted, you know, I wanted to um, be a cartoonist, so I would read, like, how to be, uh, you know, how to draw Marvel comics or whatever. And all the companies would have their submission policies, and all they did was emphasize storytelling, yeah. you know, in the submission policies. So, you know, maybe I, I gravitated towards that. You know, an emphasis on the storytelling. Like, I would read books on cinematography and things to try to figure that stuff out. 
Well, I think part of that is they probably also got lots of submissions that were nothing but horrendous splash pages. <laughs> I guess so, especially probably in the 90s. Yeah. Just girls in bikinis. Right. Twisting around impossibly. Yeah. Thank God that's over. Or is it? Is it really over? I don't know. I, I have no idea how that artwork is still successful, you know, on any scale. Like, why would... It just seems like the strangest thing. I could see in, in pre-internet days why that might be appealing to, like, a 14-year-old kid or a really scary 35-year-old man. But I don't know why it would exist now. One of my favorite convention experiences um, was going by Rob Liefeld's table. Not a fan, whatever. But I'm a big fan of his. But someone came up to him and brought his commission sketch back and complained that the breasts were too droopy. Wow. That's a pretty good convention story. I, it was just like it was amazing and his reaction was perfect it was like well she's breastfeeding there you go <laughs> it was wow, just like, even more creepy it was just like shut the guy down I was just really surprised just like how someone has like this expectation of like really really you're buying that specifically for the shade and it's just like I don't know but maybe that, that's 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 an incredible story. When did that happen? I think that was two years. No, last year actually. Last year at Emerald City. Jeez. So there you go. Go to Emerald City. Maybe you'll get someone to get you to, to do a commission sketch. And <laughs> I think one year they were set up. Uh, Lifeout was set up by um, Sparkplug or. Oh, geez. It's it San Diego. It might not have been spark plug, but it was it was some like very, you know, much more thoughtful artistic publisher and cartoonist of that yeah. sort. And they were they were and like Liefeld was on the end cap right next to them, so it was kind of funny to hang out and watch that. <laughs> See, I'm I'm really actually kind of fascinated by Liefeld. Like, not into his stuff, but I'm into kind of how much he believes in his work. And that kind of his like grandioseness to him, which I find really fascinating. Yeah, I think there's a psychological. I I think there have been studies done on this, and often I think the confidence levels are sort of inversely related to the actual results. Yeah. Or the you know the quality of the work. But then there's we can say that, but then also there's these hordes of fans that he has too so it's like you know a Rob Blyfeld comic's going to sell more than a spark plug comic unfortunately you know yeah I don't I'm not sure how equating sales to quality is a, a pretty difficult yeah I know you know I'm not sure you can measure measure one against the other it's not a quantifiable aspect. Right. Speaking of image, <laughs> um, because Rob Liefeld was part of image, you have One Model Nation, which I finally read the other day. Uh, what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. The lettering really bothered me. I'll be really did honest. It? The lettering was really badly done. 
but the comic was fun to read. It was a good comic. Why didn't you like the lettering? Because it just seemed like lettering done by, like, early 90s, someone printing their own comics and doing the lettering on the computer. I recommended that that lettering style. (laughs) You know why? I wanted it to feel like... um, Do you ever see, like, in the 70s, whenever uh, comics would be imported or, or, like, translated comics, a lot of times they would just typeset the lettering? Yeah. That was the look that I was trying to get there. I mean, I didn't letter it, but I did mock-ups that were sort of how that lettering developed. Well, let me just pull my foot out of my mouth. No, that's okay. I'm all, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's no problem. <laughs> I like the comic. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Kraftwerk fan, so I kind of had a good idea of what was going on with some of the, the basis of the characters, at least. And, uh, you know. Yeah, that was an interesting interesting project. It was kind of a lot of hands in putting it together, am I right? Yeah, there were. You guys had, like, a special writer on the project. It was the... What band was he from? The Dandy Dandy Warhols. There we go. Yeah, we were adapting it from a screenplay. Oh, okay. And there were challenges involved with that. So... Um, tell me about about, or tell people a bit about the book. Maybe you don't. Have well, to. it's um, it's set in the seventies in um, Germany. It's about an, I guess, an industrial noise band or an electronics band, and um, it's framed against the back backdrop of like the Bader Meinhof group, mm-hmm. which was part of the Red Army faction a terrorist, like a youth terrorist movement in Germany at the time. And the band is associated with the terrorist groups because they're, I guess, the youth culture kind of overlaps. And so um, the band kind of has to uh, deal with that, you know, being the soundtrack of this terrorist group that they really don't want to be associated with, but they're apolitical, so hard to distance themselves from it and then especially whenever the authorities are an older generation and just kind of lumps all this youth culture together were you into that sound about right yeah yeah were you into any of the uh in your own past into any of the music that was kind of discussed in it or had an interest in that kind of 70s german counterculture movement not really no no i was very it was another thing that i became familiar with uh, once I got involved with the project, there is some pretty fascinating stuff that comes out during that time and a little after and a little before. I think one of my favorites was the SPK. Did you hear about them at all? No. They were at uh, the Social Patients Collective, um, and they just they were a group of uh, mental health patients, and they ended up blowing themselves up by uh, accident. With some bombs they were trying to make. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of conjures up some odd imagery of uh, folks coming together and doing some crazy stuff. So it's interesting. Yeah, I think there was a lot of potential, um, you know, with the project. I liked, you know, like we did all, um, all the pages are based on comic book grids. 
and part of that is to approximate the sound, you know, the, the rhythm of the music. Oh, uh, okay. And part of it is because the target audience we expected to reach was um, a lot of, like, music fans rather than traditional comic book readers. Yeah. And so we thought the grid would be, um, make you know, make the work very accessible to people that didn't have a lot of experience reading comics. And working with the grid was kind of awesome. <laughs> I can see why guys like Eddie Campbell and David Lapham and, you know, like, why these people work that way. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, a lot of... I was working on it. I finished that book, and uh, within a month, sent Aphrodisiac off to the printer. So I was kind of working on them at the same time. And, um, you know, they're both in the 70s. And I was looking at a lot of the Kirby 70s stuff, and that's whenever he really started doing that six-panel grid. Yeah. You know, like in 2001. It's it's amazing in 2001. And, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. Like that comp, I, I could see myself doing more work with the grid. Well, that's good. It's uh, Kirby's a good uh, fallback for. And it's interesting because while you're talking about the grid, I took a look through the Street Angel, and yeah, it's not very grid based. It's kind of a mishmash of different grid and a lot of kind of open pages where things kind of pull itself together. It's funny, yeah. Street Angel, Street Angel was very chaotic in the creative process. You know, it was more or less the first comic book that I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd done many comics before, but that was the first attempt at, like, a published, widely distributed book. I didn't even do breakdowns for most of it, <laughs> which is crazy to me now, because, like, now I do, you know, tiny breakdowns, uh, you know, that wouldn't make sense to anybody. They're drawn, like, an inch big. And then I do more detailed breakdowns, and sometimes I even do, like, another step after that, <laughs> like all this preparatory work on a page. Well, I guess for... Af- any better then? For aphrodisiac, you kind of fall back to the the grid panel too, though. Since you're like kind of you know evoking that older style. So is see, that... I, I don't, I don't think so. There's there's a fair amount of grid in it. Not as much as the specific grid is. Yeah, I guess the, uh... you're right. There there probably is, and I think that I just gravitate towards the use of the grid. But a lot of the '70s stuff, you know, like Neil Adams is a guy that I really think of as a '70s imprinting his style on the decade. Yeah. And, you know, his layouts are not not like a grid at all. No. He won't just go all over the place and do whatever he could. It's a lot... That that kind of um, page layout, I have a lot more trouble with storytelling. You know, making the storytelling clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the stuff Brian and I do is fairly dense, so the storytelling needs to be clear. You know, as clear as, as it can be drawn because a lot of times things are happening, you know, like two or three characters are in a panel and something, they're referencing what they're actually doing. So. I think I'm just not as comfortable with the looser page layouts. Well, and that's interesting because, I mean, you try it out and you gave it a shot with Street Angel, and it worked really well with Street Angel. Um, but, I mean, it, it kind of, it's part of that process, right? of kind of working through stuff. And I'm presuming with Plain Janes, you also had to follow a specific grid work for doing such a, like, I guess, uh, entry-level comic that wasn't specifically aimed to folks that have been reading comics for 20 years. I 
can't remember us talking about it, but it, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I'm sure that was a concern with the Plain Janes, but um, I don't remember us spending that much time on it. Mm-hmm. Usually, um, my storytelling, I think, is one of my strengths, so it's not something that most of the editors I've worked with have, we, you know, like that's not where our focus usually is when it comes to re- revising yeah. and editing. It's a clean story. The other thing with the grid that I think is interesting now is I feel like we're entering a phase of like a post-format specific phase, you know, with everything migrating to handheld devices and tablets and reading things online versus turning pages. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like I've been thinking a lot about that format, the malleability of the format, and I think the grid probably gives you a little bit more freedom to migrate a story. Well, yeah, what you could see is people end up doing standardized panel frames. Right. Like, I could totally see that being, like, iPod or, you know, iPhone. Yeah, and I always, um, I really like page layout. I I feel like that's the design part of the page a lot of times. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time doing that. But um, I just read uh, one of the coll- one of those new Jason collections, followed by uh, Beto's Troublemakers book, and both of them are just these four panel layouts where the panel you know the the, the panel breakdown is exactly the same on every page, and I enjoyed reading both of those a lot, and then I sit there and think why you know I spend all this time worrying about page layout and maybe it's misguided. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, like, one thing, I've had a lot of talks with Brandon about one thing we look at in is lettering, especially when you start playing with the layout, and um, how sometimes folks don't really get it when they're creating the layout, like how the story moves and stuff, and I think that's a challenge for a lot of cartoonists, it's, and that process of the next level of it because he's showing me stuff where like you have to rearrange lettering because the person just doesn't get it um, of which way the story moves. Right. So yeah. I mean, I'd, whenever I do breakdowns like for Dark Horse, I um, indicate all of my lettering. I don't, I, you know, and it's not necessarily that the letter will follow it, but at least I know that it works. Yeah. You know, um, but you're right. The lettering. I'm surprised that more people don't don't focus on lettering in comics because I think it's it's in a pretty poor state these days because it seems so easy to do I picked up a bunch of um, Beavis and Butthead comics recently Yeah, and I didn't really intend to but they were sitting in this um, discount bin so I opened one just to see what it looked like and it was kind of it was really nice and the artist did his own lettering Rick Parker yeah and like that's the reason I ended up buying a stack of these you know, almost exclusively because the lettering was so nice. Yeah, and, and most comics, you know, especially a lot of the computer lettered stuff, I, I, it just looks terrible. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue that one. Um, and it's interesting because it's because it's so easy now, people won't put in that work. Or one thing I've heard from, from friends at our letters is that people that are writing the comics now don't understand lettering and so they'll write these like long early image-esque 
dialogues, which you can't do. That's going to take up the whole balloon, the whole panel. Human nature is very lazy, and I think now a lot of um, writers and editors don't even clean up scripts until the very last step, whenever it would go to a letterer. Yeah. So if you were going to do hand lettering, you know that needs to be figured out before the artwork's produced. And the other um, terrible thing with hand lettering are uh, translations become problematic. Translated yeah. editions. Like, <laughs> I'm running into that right now with Aphrodisiac. <sighs> like, it's a nightmare to re-letter. But that's, uh, that shows a lot of gumption to do it by hand. Or are you doing it on the computer? I haven't decided how I'm doing it. It needs to be done. <laughs> um, but it's probably not something I'm going to start working on until April. Yeah. I'll probably just make a master set of artwork where I remove the lettering and then worry about re-lettering it on, like, a case-by-case basis. I guess it's going to be in French, I'm presuming. Yeah, that's probably the first The first translated one will be French. I'd be curious to see what aphrodisiac is in German. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the aphrodisiac part changes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that'll be interesting anyways. Um, we're pretty much at the end of our time here. So thanks okay. for taking the time to chat with me, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me. 